You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. I love The Princess Bride. And one of the reasons I love that movie, it's not just uh, that Andre the Giant is in it. It's not just that we have a tale of, of true love and mailage and all of these great things. But I love the fact that it's a story inside another story. And yet it is so good that we forget all along it's Columbo reading a story to little Kevin Arnold, right? Because you get so into that tale. And I feel that's a little bit of what we get with the story of David. As we've been going through this series from chaos to Christ, it's easy to lose sight of the greater story that's going on in the story of David. The story of scripture. The story that if our, if you were like a little Jewish kid in the days before Jesus, and you had a sick day and your grandfather came over, you know, and sat at your bed and started reading you the story of scripture, it's a story that leads you to ask a question. A question of where is our hero? Where is our deliverer? And it starts out in Genesis 2, or I'm sorry, in Genesis 3, after we have Adam and Eve who have sinned against God, and then God tells them their punishment, but with that punishment, there's almost a promise. And so as God addresses the serpent, here's what he says in Genesis 3.15. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head and she shall, he shall bruise he shall bruise your head. That's important. I got it reversed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so all of scripture is set up with this promise from God that one day there will be one who comes, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, who will defeat the enemy, who will crush sin, who will crush the serpent. And so as we are hearing this story, we're asking that question, right? If your grandfather were reading this, you'd be asking that question and you'd get through to, to Adam and Eve and you get to Cain and Abel, their kids, and you'd say, well, could Cain be the promise? Like he's the offspring, could it be Cain? But then Cain kills his brother Abel and you're like, oh no, it's not Cain. And then you get a little further to Noah, you're like, well, he's a righteous man and God uses him to deliver all of humanity. Could Noah be the, the crusher of the serpent? But then we read this story about Noah who gets drunk overnight and ends up in his tent naked and he's as sinful as all of the rest of humanity has been. And then we get to Abraham, we're like, well, grandpa, it's gotta be Abraham, right? Like he's gotta be the hero. He's gotta be the one that's gonna crush the serpent. But then we hear that Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant. And then on two occasions, he lies and says his wife is his sister to try and protect his life and sacrifice her in a way. We get from Abraham to his sons, to his son's sons. We get all the way down to Moses. We're like, well, this has to be the guy, right, Grandpa? Like, he's got to be the one that the promise is coming through. But then we hear that Moses is also disobedient to God. And it goes all through this great story. And we're asking this question, who will crush the serpent? Who will deliver humanity from our greatest enemy of sin? Who's it going to be, Grandpa? And then we get to the story of David. And in David, the story of David, things are looking good, right? David is this great king. He's doing a way better job than the king before him. He's brought prosperity to the kingdom. He's pushed back all of Israel's enemies. It's been a time of prosperity for the whole nation because of David, the man who was anointed by God, the man who the Bible says was after God's own heart. He's gotta be the guy, right, Grandpa? But then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so that's where we're at this morning in the story of David. If you've got your scriptures and you wanna open it up, that's where we'll be for most of the day, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And here's how it starts out. It says, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab 
and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, an enemy of Israel, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, the writer is telling us a lot here without telling us a lot. He gives us this little note that it was in the, the time of year when kings would go out to war, but we hear that David didn't go out to war. Instead, he sent Joab, one of his commanders. We don't know why. We don't know why he goes out to war. Maybe he's just kind of over it. Maybe he's getting too old. He's like, I've done enough conquest. Like, I think I'll sit back and relax this time. You know, maybe he's got something else going on. Like, oh, I got to do this other thing. Like, that's happening right now. Joab can handle it. Maybe he's setting up Joab, like, to be a new leader. Like, Joab, you need to take command of this one. You can do it. We don't get the details why David doesn't go to war. But what we're told is that in this moment, David is not where he's supposed to be, for whatever the reason might be. And, and we don't really know the exact reason, but I wonder if it isn't that maybe David has lost sight of his purpose from God. David has lost sight of what God has called him to, what God wants to use David's life for, to be a king, to deliver Israel and lead Israel. And here we see David just sitting back and doing nothing, just back at home in his palace, enjoying his time. And I believe that sometimes, as we're gonna see happens in the story of David, I believe sometimes that's the root of sin for many Christians. That's the root of a lot of sins that come after Christians, that we lose sight of God's purpose for us. With David, it turns into a big mess. But I think lots of affairs among Christians start because we've lost sight of God's purpose in our lives. Lots of addiction starts in the lives of Christians because we've lost sight of God's purpose for our lives. And so we stop living for what God wants us to do. We stop putting our goals to be the same as God's goals for us. We get distracted. We can get disillusioned. We can even just get bored because we've lost sight of what God has for us. And oftentimes that, just, that is the start of sin in our lives. And I think that's what happens with David here. We don't get all the details, but we know he's not doing what a king is supposed to do. He's lost sight of what God has called him to do. And so then we see David begins down this dangerous path. And it's a path that if we jump to the New Testament real quick, a path that James, the, the writer James, talks about in James 1.14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This morning, we're going to watch David travel down the exact path that James just described. So in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11, here's what it tells us. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now we've got a lot to talk about this morning in this passage. There's a lot that happens, and a lot of it is not easy to talk about. A lot of it is stuff that we don't enjoy talking about. But it's right here. It's very plain in our Bible. And I think we have to look first off at, at this idea of Bathsheba. And we have to kind of shed off a lot of what our culture, our history has painted her out to be. 
If you were to look up, and I don't recommend you do this, but if you were to look up paintings of Bathsheba throughout history, she's almost always painted in kind of a scandalous way, often as the temptress, right? Movies about this scene in the Bible, there's one with Gregory Peck, like back in the 50s or whenever, called David and Bathsheba, and it's about this mutual forbidden love affair. And there's this idea that Bathsheba falls for David and David falls for Bathsheba We don't get that in our Bible. That's not the the painting that is given to us in the Bible. We don't get a ton of details, just what we read. But I know, and it might be the same for you, I know that I've heard a lot of sermons that talks about the sin of Bathsheba as much as the sin of David, and I just think that that's maybe unfair, and based off of the text that we just read is, is a little bit incorrect. First off, the first argument you'll hear is, well, what was Bathsheba doing bathing up on a roof? I don't know all the history about what they did with bathing back then, but typically in cultures without running water or indoor plumbing, you might store up rainwater on a roof. And so maybe it's not you know, uncommon for people to bathe on the roof. And usually that would be a place of privacy because people from below where most people were wouldn't be able to see your roof. But David lives in the palace in Jerusalem, which was set up kind of on top of a hill. And so David could look down all over the city and see everything going on. And so what is often a place of privacy, which would be a rooftop, maybe for the king, though, it's not private from the king. But I think there's another thing we have to point out here is that we aren't told exactly where Bathsheba is bathing. So if you've ever read this and had somebody talk to you and be like, what is she doing just out in the open bathing like that? We don't know where Bathsheba was bathing. The Bible doesn't say that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. That was Leonard Cohen, right? Remember that song? Hallelujah. You saw her bathing on the roof. Blah, 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 blah. The moonlight overtook you. Like we've heard that a million times, right? It's incorrect. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that she was bathing on the roof. It just says that David saw from the roof a woman bathing. The palace sits over top of everything. He could see on tops of roofs. He can see down into private courtyards. He can see through windows. We don't know where David sees Bathsheba or how close or what kind of detail there was, but all we know is that, we, that he saw her. And the only real note we get about Bathsheba here, which I think is a little bit of an insight into her character, is this in the second part of Samuel 11.4. It says that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, baths in the Jewish culture were not like a daily thing. In most cultures where there's no indoor plumbing, bathing is not really a daily thing. And among Hebrews, it became kind of a momentous occasion. And you can look into the Old Testament law about all this, but often before sacrifices, priests would have to bathe and it'd be kind of a ritual. Or if someone came in contact with some kind of like dead animal or death in some way, they'd be considered unclean, so they'd bathe themselves as part of a ritual. If they came in contact with any kind of bodily fluids, they would bathe themselves as part of a ritual. And we get an insight here that Bathsheba was bathing to purify herself, it says, which is most likely after a menstruation cycle as was instructed to women in Leviticus 15. So what we're told is that Bathsheba was doing what she was supposed to do in obedience to God's law. In contrast to David, who was not doing what kings are supposed to do in obedience to God's law. So I think there's kind of a contrast between the two characters. And maybe I'm reading into it. Maybe history has read into it. And and we don't exactly know everything going on in the story But I think what we see is we have Bathsheba just kind of minding her business and David begins looking for trouble. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It was David's desire and no one else's 
that led him down this path of sin. And so then it says that uh, David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now the Hebrew word therefore took is lakash, which means to receive or take. It's often translated that way to just simply take something. But it can also be translated to mean take by force or to go after, to take something against another's will. And so the wording of the Hebrew there doesn't really give us too much insight into how it is. But what we do know is that you don't say no to the king. So when these messengers show up in Bathsheba's house, we don't know if they're grabbing her and taking her, if they're telling her lies, saying like, oh, yeah, you got to see this in the palace, or the king has sent from you, and they don't give her the details of why he has sent for her. We don't know the details there. But also we do know that in many cultures, it's considered the king's right to have any woman in the kingdom. And so now David is taking what he sees to be his right. He takes Bathsheba, and I think it's quite likely, though it's not explicitly written in the Bible, that he rapes her. And what we read in the, the plain text there, I don't see this as something she goes about willingly. And so we get to a place that's not comfortable to talk about. We get to a place that's not comfortable to talk about, that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And I think what David does to Bathsheba is definitely a sin. Sexual abuse, rape is an abhorrent sin. And we just have to take some moments. We should probably devote more time to it, but we're not going to be able to do that. And I don't know that I would be the person to devote that time to this subject, but we have to talk a little bit about sexual abuse. And I have to say that if there's anyone in our audience today online or here in the room that has experienced this, it was a sin what was done to you. It was wrong, and I am sorry that you had to go through that. What I also know is that part of the healing process for something like this is talking to people. That healing won't begin until you begin sharing with people. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't done that, if this is a part of your past, your history, or your right now, that you find someone that you can talk to. And if you don't feel like you have anyone to talk to, contact someone on our church staff. We would love to put you in contact with someone else that you could talk to about this so that healing can take place in your life for the terrible things that were done to you. Sin is conceived, or I'm sorry, the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And so we see right here that David has this desire. He pursues it. It's his own desire. And then he sleeps with Bathsheba. There is sin. Sin, sexual sin, is a very, very destructive sin. And whenever we see it in the Bible, it's almost, almost always used, or just sex even in the Bible, it's almost always used to present the destructive side of sex. The story of David and Bathsheba is one of many where sex takes place in the Bible outside of God's plan for it, and it is always destructive. And it always carries lots more into the picture than the people involved in it ever would have expected. There's something about sexual sin as opposed to other sins that just makes it a little bit more destructive. Maybe not even just a little bit, but much more destructive than other sins. All sins are sins. All sins bear the penalty of death and hell in the eyes of God. But for some reason, sexual sin gets a lot trickier. And there's a lot more pain that comes with it. There's a lot more destruction that comes with sexual sin for all involved. 
as we see, not just for David, but especially for Bathsheba, for the family members of these people. And whether it's the story of David or Bathsheba, we see all throughout the Bible that sex, when it leaves God's plan for sex, becomes very destructive. And so we have to also acknowledge just a little bit like, well, what is God's plan for sex? What is his sexual ethic? Which is something we've talked about here. It's something that we often talk about in the youth group because kids are dealing with this a lot. But we see just in that opening chapter of the Bible in Genesis, we see God's plan for sex set up between Adam and Eve, between one man and one woman becoming one for life. No other partners involved, no other sexual immorality involved. That's the sexual ethic that God sets up for us to live by. And then all throughout the Bible, we see stories like the one of David and Bathsheba, that when people go outside of God's plan for sex, things go wrong. So sex in itself is not dirty, it's not gross. In fact, when we talk about it in the youth group, I call it God's pretty awesome plan for sex. Because when we follow God's plan, it can be a great thing in our lives. But we see right here that when we step outside of God's plan of one man, one woman, four life together, that things get very tragic and very destructive for all of the people involved. And so we find right here that this is what happens in David's life and Bathsheba's life. That he takes her, he sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. And now we have this conflict on our hands because Bathsheba is married to a guy named Uriah. And Uriah is not just any man. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. As we've read through this story, you heard about times when David was hiding out from Saul in the cave. And the Bible talks about many people coming to be with David. And he gathers an army in this time in the cave. And the Bible lists out these like 30 to 50 men that it refers to as his mighty men who were so loyal to David. And they're these great warriors. And Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of David's mighty men. One of these warriors loyal to the king. But David hasn't been loyal to Uriah. And so now Uriah's wife is pregnant while he's been away at battle. And so David has to come up with figuring out what to do. So he hatches this plan. He has Uriah, calls him from the battlefield to, to this big dinner, and he has Uriah come over. And his plan is that he'll get Uriah to go home, and Uriah can then sleep with his wife and then find out, oh, she's pregnant. And then everybody will think that it's Uriah's son or daughter at this point, we don't know. They'll think it's Uriah's baby and not David's. And so David pursues his plan. He calls Uriah in. He says, Uriah, come on from the battlefield. He has him to dinner. And then he goes to send him home, hoping at night, like, go on. He sends this gift basket. You know, there's like chocolate in the gift basket and rose petals and like a berry white CD. And he's like, take this home to your wife. But we find out that Uriah doesn't go home. And so the next day, David asks him, he's like, why did you not go home? 2 Samuel 11, 11, Uriah responds to David and says, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? Uriah describes specifically what David just did and says, how could I do something so sinful? Because there was even a law in that time that men were not to have any kind of sexual action when they're on the battlefield because it would involve these different purification rites. It would remove them from the battle. And so it was against the law to do what Uriah is talking about here. 
And so he's like, I can go and do that. And David's like, oh, that's exactly what I did with your wife. So David comes up with plan B. Plan A didn't work. He has Uriah to dinner the next night. And he gets him super just sloshed, like drunk, like crazy thing. Like, oh, I'll get him so drunk that he'll lower his standards. He'll do things that I did when I was sober. I got to get him drunk to do this. And then he gets Uriah too drunk. And the Bible tells us that Uriah just slept on the couch in the palace that night. He didn't go home to his wife. So now David has to come up with plan C. And we read in verse 14, it says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of their army, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah has to carry his own execution orders to his commanding officer. That is dark. But that's exactly what happens. So Joab carries out David's plan. Now David is guilty of murder. He's also made Joab complicit in murder. And in this crazy, crazy battle plan that they designed, many other soldiers died, all because of David's sin. Our sin rarely only affects us. Sexualist sin tends to be more destructive than other kinds. We see right here that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what James tells us. We've seen the pattern of sin leading all the way to death. In this case, we see the death that it brings, the death of Uriah and other soldiers. But many times we don't see the death, the eternal death that sin brings, the eternal death that sin merits, which is hell. And so here we see it played out with David. And then we hear this about Bathsheba. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He lost sight of his purpose from God, and now look at where he is. So some time passes, and if you flip to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, You'll see that Nathan the prophet comes in and he gives this big parable to David, a parable about sheep, which David is a shepherd. David would click with this parable. And so David is zoned in as Nathan the prophet tells him the story about a man who had this precious sheep, just one lamb precious to him. It would eat at his table. He'd drink and then he'd give some of this little sheep out of his cup. Note that he's talking about a sheep that a guy loves. And then a rich guy who has many sheep which is very similar to David because we've not talked about every single one, but we've already seen that David has at least two wives. One was a daughter of Saul and then another Abigail that we talked about. But then in the meantime, he's gained several others. At the time that he sleeps with Bathsheba and then makes her his wife, David has seven other wives. And then we read that he also has 10 concubines later on. So David has a flock of women. And Nathan tells him the story of there's this other guy, this rich and wealthy guy, and he's got this whole flock of sheep. And then somebody comes to town, he's got to throw a feast for this guy. And so he goes over to this poor man who only had one sheep and he takes that sheep from him. He slaughters it and there he throws his festival. And Nathan says to David, what do you think should be done to this guy? And David is like, I think he should be murdered. Where is this guy? Find him and bring him to me. And the parable ends with this moment where Nathan says to David, you are that man. The guy that you're upset about, that happened with sheep. You did this to the wife of Uriah. And so David then is just overwhelmed seeing the sin that he has committed. And he begins weeping. And then Nathan tells him about the punishment that's going to come to him because he disobeyed God. Punishment that the sword would not now depart David's house. 
that David's wives would be publicly taken. And also that the child that Bathsheba now carries will die. Poor Bathsheba. Her husband is lost and now her child is lost and she is married to this man that she never intended on marrying. But grandpa, what about the hero? But grandpa, what about the serpent crusher? I thought it was gonna be David. I thought he was the guy. Everything was set up. He was this great king. Everything was successful. He was the one that was supposed to defeat the serpent and crush sin and get rid of it for all of humanity. But grandpa, what about the promise? I think that's the moment we get to when we read this story about David. This question asking, but what about the promises of God? The promises that talk about sin being crushed. What about God's promise for David? It's a question that maybe he is looking at in his life. For us, I think it's a question that we have to begin to look at in our lives. Not just in the whole realm of scripture, but for us personally. What if like David, I have done terrible things? Are God's promises still real to me? Will they still come true to me, God's promise of forgiveness? What if like Bathsheba, terrible things have been done to me? Can God still really love me, even though I've been used this way, even though these things have happened in my life? What about God's promises there? Can God's promises still be fulfilled to me, that he loves me, that he has forgiveness for me? What of God's promises? And as we go through the story of David, we see that things get real complicated for him, but that the promises God had made to David, that he would always have a son on the throne of Israel, those promises remain unbroken. So God withholds his promise to David, even though David has sinned circles around most people, God still holds to his promise that he made to David. And God will still hold to his promise that he made to you. No matter how much sin you have, no matter the things that have been done to you, God's promises will prevail. And we see this. We see that in the story of Scripture as it continues and human after human falls. Every hero we think we're going to have that might crush the head of the serpent falls and sins until we get to the New Testament. And God looks around and he sees that there is no human that can fulfill this promise. So God becomes a human. And God fulfills this promise at his expense. Hebrews 2.14 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, God, partook the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. God became a human. Jesus Christ, he walked our earth. He experienced what we experienced. And then he died to crush the head of the serpent. Yes, his heel was bruised in death, but then he rose again so that we would not have to taste death. The death that James talks about when our desires lead to sin and our sin births death. We're free from that death because of what Jesus did for us. We don't have to experience it. We don't have to experience the punishment that comes from our sins of hell because Jesus experienced death on our behalf. So as we read this story this morning, I hope that you can put yourself in the place of it, maybe in the character of David seeing like, man, I have sinned. I have a mess in my life, but know that God still loves you. God still died for you. Or maybe like Bathsheba, you see like, ah, I've got a mess in my life. These things have been done to me. Can anyone still love me? Can God still rescue and redeem me? And we see that, yes, he does still love you. He does still want to rescue you and has redeemed you. 
We read that in all the chaos of Bathsheba's life, her next son by David is a guy named Solomon, who becomes a very wise king, has his own set of problems, but he invites his mother to sit at his right hand. Bathsheba gets to sit at the right hand of the king. As the story goes forward, when we get to the book of Matthew and he gives the genealogy of Jesus, the wife of Uriah is mentioned. From the chaos of her life comes Christ. And so this morning, I would hope that in the chaos of your life, you would be able to see Christ. And you would be able to not lose sight of God's calling for you, a calling that is a relationship to him, a calling that is a life lived out for him. So right now we're going to move to communion. And I want us just to have a time of reflection on all of this, God's promise to us, but also the things that we have done showing that we don't deserve this promise. The mess in our lives, the chaos that we have created for ourselves or maybe others have created for us. I want a time to reflect on that, but not to stay there too long, but to begin to reflect on the redemption that came through Christ. And so at the communion stations around the room, you're gonna see that there's not only the elements of communion, the, the bread and the juice that represents Jesus' body and his blood broken and poured out for us, but on the tables, you also find a half a sheet of paper which has Psalm 51 on it. Psalm 51 is a poem that David wrote after Nathan the prophet came and confronted him. A poem of David laying out his shame to God, begging for God's forgiveness, which is something that we each need to do, to lay out our shame before God and ask for his forgiveness. And so this morning, I just wanna invite you to have a time doing that as you read through this poem, this Psalm by David, and reflect on the fact that even though we don't deserve it, God sent his promise for us, which we recognize and remember in communion. So let me pray for us. God, I thank you that when we couldn't do it on our own, and when there was no other hero in sight, you came. And you became a human and you died for us. And in the midst of all of our chaos, we get to see Christ. And so I pray this morning, God, no matter what we have done or what has been done to us, we could look clearly upon the cross and know that we have been redeemed and know that death has been crushed. Know that the serpent is gone, that the threat of death and hell is no longer in our lives because we can have a relationship with your son, because we can have forgiveness for our sins. And so God, we approach the communion table this morning in that manner, knowing that we are not worthy for what you have done for us, but thanking you, Jesus, that we can have redemption because you died on the cross for us. It's in your name we pray.